morning, everybody. Uh, something just thought of when Daddy was praying uh, about why Luke wrote. And uh, we've talked about, of course, the benefactor, Theophilus, that uh, appeared to have funded uh, Luke's writing of both the Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts. But I read something this week that said some people think that Luke was writing to uh, to kind of a Gentile and maybe even a Roman audience um, in order to defend Christianity as uh, authentic, as more than just a small sect of belief, um, but to to say that it was very much in line with traditional Judaism and in fact was the the culmination of everything that had been written in the prophets and so forth. Uh, I read something else that said that some people, um, I'm guessing maybe a more a minority, but it's interesting to think about, say that that Luke was writing to the new Christians uh, and and perhaps um, uh, defending uh, Rome and that it was okay to uh, interact with Rome and to take advantage of the uh, laws that Rome had and to um, participate perhaps in that political process in some way and that maybe um, uh, you know if you remember the climate there was persecution primarily coming from the Jews. So people were saying well maybe Luke was was saying that, you know, if, if the Christians kind of could maybe take some sort of protection under the the Roman authority uh, against the Jews that were the main source of persecution at the time. Now that sounds a little bit more far-fetched, but it does at least make the point, I think, that that Luke wasn't just writing in a vacuum. He wasn't just writing for us, that there is a lot of context that was going on around the time of his writing that that we can probably, like we're doing now, just kind of speculate about. But it does it does um, give, give you something interesting to think about uh, that perspective. Uh, also, as we go through our chapters today, it's interesting to think about. We get an interesting look. Um, we hear the gospel presentation. Uh, we hear uh, Paul's conversion experience and so forth but then we also get to see how that um, account was perceived by a non-christian or by um, you know a pagan uh, it's just interesting to hear what people think about what Paul was saying and and you may have seen this sometimes in the news where where you'll hear um, uh, a reporter who, by their very comments, you can tell, doesn't know a whole lot of first-hand experience about perhaps Christianity or the church, and you'll hear them try to explain things, um, and sometimes the things they emphasize are a little bit different, and you can tell that they kind of got the point, but kind of didn't get the point, and it's just, it's interesting, we, we get, we assume so much because we have a common set of beliefs and values and so forth, but it, it really is different 
when we get to see how our message is perceived by someone who doesn't have that that background. So just kind of think about those things as we go through um, uh, our chapters today. And uh, we're going to just, uh, again, it's, it's kind of story time, right? We're going to we're going to read the story, and it's a good story, uh, so so pay attention. And the other thing is, too, I'll, I'll say by way of, um, I guess, introduction, uh, there is a um, church discipleship movement that's based on uh, this concept of, uh, of the story that, especially in the New Testament, uh, but really, I don't know, that's probably not even true. There's some great stories in the Old Testament. Um, but that if you learn an account with enough detail that you can tell the story and not miss anything, then you really understand it. And that it's some kind of, sometimes a good exercise to, uh, to try to do that. Uh, I was talking with a... Um, with someone recently about um, the uh, parable of uh, the prodigal son and so many little nuances of the story um, become very important depending on what you want to emphasize and of course a good st story often has multiple ways of applying it but but it's important to to get the details and so as you read some of these accounts think about trying to tell someone else what happened and you'll realize a couple things. First of all, you'll realize how many parts of the story you don't know. <laughs> um, and, uh, but then you'll be surprised at the ones that, that do. Um, so anyway, let's jump on in. We're going to be in chapter 25 and move on. And we'll probably get to, uh, we'll probably get to 26. Now, we, we have to back up, as we often do, to go back to 24. And we have... Uh, Paul, having been uh, brought down from Jerusalem down to Caesarea, and he is uh, with Felix. And if you look at verse uh, 24, it says, uh, After some days Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he, as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And we talked last week about this concept of, uh, you know, perhaps Felix had come under conviction and um, uh, just uh, was was probably some spiritual struggle there, and he had to he had to just stop. He couldn't deal with it. Verse twenty six. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him off and conversed with him. When two years had, had elapsed. Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So, we have Felix. He's just let Paul hang out. Here it is. Two years passed. And I guess when things got slow, and he'd invite Paul, and they would chat and so forth, I'm sure Paul would, would, would try to uh, you know, make whatever argument he could make. Um, but this went on back and forth for two years. Now we get to chapter 25. Now, after, now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that they, 
that he summoned him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. And Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let him bring charges against him. So this is really interesting. Portius Festus just gets authority taken over from Felix. He hasn't even made it to his home base in Caesarea. But before he even do that, it's the first thing he does when he gets in the territory is to go to Jerusalem. Now, as you'll recall, we've said it many times, the Jewish leadership was very much enmeshed in the whole Roman thing, right? The, the Jew thing, uh, the Jewish leadership, they were corrupt. There was probably bribes being handled back and forth. Um, and so this was probably, you know, your first stop, you got to go check and make sure you're still in good with the locals. Let them know where to send their checks. Um, you know, just let them know what the arrangements are going to be. Before he does anything else, he touches base with them. Now here's just as interesting. It's been two years. And the Jews are still upset about Paul. Really? Is this all they've had to do for two years? I mean, most of the time, when you get riled about something, remember there was this whole mob mentality. After two years, you'd think they would have let it go and move on to something else. But they're still upset. I can't, I mean, I can't think of a single political issue that was going on two years ago. Can you? Maybe. No, maybe I can't. Um, there was this whole email thing. But, but think about it. Two years. Is this all they have to talk about? Apparently so. And once again, they're back to their same plan. Somewhere between Jerusalem and Caesarea, we're going we're gonna to waylay this guy. That was their original plan, remember? That was why Paul went under guard from Jerusalem to Caesarea in the first place, because this was their plan that they heard about through Paul's nephew. Is that right? His sister's son? In any event, it's one of those details. See, I should remember that. So here we go. After he, verse 6, after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. This is Festus. And the next day, the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. So that means the Jews had to pack up and leave right then too. They had to send their delegation, right? He said, send some people who have some authority and they're going to have to bring charges in front of me because I don't want this guy, you know, being charged unless he can answer his accusers. So he goes, well, eight or ten, he said stay not more than eight or ten days. So I guess that's how long they had. They go down to Caesarea and think about Caesarea and the palace, the government there, has been probably vacant for a few months, right? Felix is gone. Think about all the political things that could have happened since then. There were probably checks to write and delegations to do and ships to talk about and who knows what else. But even Festus doesn't do that. The day after he takes his seat on the tribunal, he orders Paul to be brought. Verse 7. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense 
neither against the laws of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, how many times have we heard that passage? Wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Now, really? You think Paul was interested in that? Wishing to do the Jews a favor. If you have any doubt that there was corruption and that Felix and then Festus knew where part of their money was coming from, this should all clear it all up. I mean, there's nothing that the Jews could have done for him other than give him money. There's just nothing else. But Paul said, verse 10, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So here we have a very pivotal point in this account. Paul, who many times has been imprisoned and beaten by local authorities already, and then they would find out he was a citizen, and then they would kind of back off. So I'm sorry, Paul, we're not going to run you out of town, but we'd really like it if you left of, of your own accord. Um, thank you and, and move along. Um, finally, he says, I appeal to Caesar. So sometimes he would reveal his citizenship, sometimes he wouldn't. In this case, he did, and because he said, I'm not going back to Jerusalem. And Festus says, okay, to Caesar you shall go. Here's the next scene. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. So, Herod the Great was the, um, the king uh, around the time of Jesus' birth, right? Then there was Agrippa I, who, remember back in Acts 4 or 5, did not dispute that his words were of a God and, and he died and the worms ate him up. This is his son, I think. Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Let's talk about Bernice for a second. Bernice was Agrippa's sister. And word was that they kind of had a thing. And for a while she would like go marry somebody else just to kind of, I guess, divert suspicion. But then she would, next thing you know, she was back traveling with Agrippa. So that was the talk. And apparently she was the flamboyant one, the famous one. Um, one uh, one uh, commentator said it would be like if Paul showed up to see a politician and Marilyn Monroe was right there next to him. <laughs> um, it said, you know, nowadays uh, she would have been the one in the tabloids and so forth. And ju this was juicy gossip. I mean, it'd be juicy gossip today um, if... Uh, your preferences were for your sister, that would still be something worth being on the cover of some reputable or not so reputable magazine. So, Agrippa the King and Bernice. 
So when Luke just kind of slides that in, you know, it says something about Agrippa, right? Because we're going to find out that he, at least he went through the motions of being a practicing Jew. Think about that. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of the Jews laid out the case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charges laid against him. I won't go through all this, but we know what happened. And basically he says, I'm, he's appealed to Caesar, and I'm going to send him to Caesar, but I'm not even real sure why I'm sending him to Caesar. I need to write Caesar something down to let him know because it seems silly for me to send somebody to Caesar without Caesar even knowing why he's being sent. So Agrippa says, hey, I'd like to hear this guy. And there we go. Verse 23. So, on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. Now, when Luke says came with great pomp, that's probably not a compliment, right? So I don't know what, what kind of pomp Bernice brought, but I'm guessing she was the one in spite, you know, that was bringing the pomp. And, uh, <laughs> and they entered the audience hall with military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer, but I found he had done nothing. You know, this is basically where Festus recounts everything and says, I'm trying to do the noble thing here, etc., etc. Um, I brought him before you, verse 26. Uh, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we've examined him, I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Verse 1 of chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand. Remember that, what was that, that little uh, gesture? Um, he stretched out his hand, saying, you know, this says... All right, I'm bringing it. Verse 2. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today. Rule number one, be nice to the person in charge at the meeting. <laughs> right? <laughs> that is a good strategy. Be nice, be respectful, and if you can lay it on thick, that never hurts. And that's what Paul is doing. It is so good, King Agrippa, that you are the person I get to make my case to. He doesn't say, do you know how many times I've told this story? No. I am so glad I get to give my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, he doesn't say, because I know you're a good Jew, because there's the whole Bernice thing, but he says, I know you're familiar with them. 
Verse 4, my manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time if they're willing to testify according to the strictest party. He goes through and he talks about his days as a zealot, right? The persecutions, the condemnation, the people that he wanted to put to death, etc., etc. Verse 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished, most, punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I prosecuted them even to the foreign city. My, my zeal was so great, my devotion to God and the Jewish faith was so great, I was all about getting rid of this blasphemer, right? Verse 12, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. In other words, these people that are accusing me, they were employing me. They were authorizing me. They were charging me to do this very thing. These same folks. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen in me and to these in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. And it's for this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I've had help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our peoples and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. If you're kind of the weak side of the argument, one of the things you can always say is, you are just too smart for your own good. If you're not quite following all the argument, or if you feel like you're not quite there, then you can just say, you're crazy, right? Now, interestingly, Festus was paying attention, at least in his prior dealings with Paul. He got this much. In fact, I regret that I've passed over this verse in verse 25, but one of the things that he was telling Agrippa as to why Paul was there, he really distilled it all out. And he says, this is verse 19, chapter 25, 
because he's explaining, you know, I can't find anything wrong with him. Certainly none of, nothing that would be against Roman law, he said, but it all seems to boil down to some disputes within the whole Jew thing. And, and when you really look at it, Agrippa, it's, it seems to be that there's this Jesus who was dead, but Paul thinks he's alive. As best I can tell, that's what it boils down to. The Jews say he was dead, and Paul says he was alive. So this is the perspective of an outsider. Even the Jews would say he doesn't get it. But he does, right? He does get it. The Jews said he was dead, and Paul says he's alive. That was the dispute. So when Paul's back in chapter 26, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus asked with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. Point number one, it's always good to butter up the leader of the meeting. You know, you may not get it, Festus, but I know the king gets this. I can tell. He's been, he's been following this. The king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. It was interesting, and I'll have these in the study notes on the, on the blog. By the way, if you go to the, the podcast, um, uh, very often... Uh, uh, Dad will put his notes. I, I often put my notes, which are like excerpts from commentaries and everything, so you'll see just how little of what gets said is original. Um, but there's this whole section about this phrase about in a corner. Apparently there was this Greek philosopher who used this concept of being in a corner um, Kind of saying, you know, it's one thing if you're going to be a philosopher and kind of hang out and talk amongst yourselves and have this little chit-chat about these esoteric topics. If you're a real philosopher, you'd get out there and make something of it. You'd get out there and put some action behind those words, right? You, you'd just get, you wouldn't be in a corner. You'd be out there, you know, you know if this is all so important, you'd be, you'd be doing something about it. And that's what Paul's saying here. I didn't do this in a corner. This wasn't just some side thing. I've been out there. I've been getting it. I've been talking to people. People are getting saved. There's stuff happening here. I didn't do this in a corner. So much so, King Agrippa, I respect you enough to know that you got your finger on what's really been going on around here, and I know you've heard about me. I know you've heard about me, and I know what you say, what you've heard is true. And then he says, verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Tosses it out there and then comes right behind it. Well, now, now he's kind of trapped, right? Well, you know, he's got to say, of course I do, right? Because <laughs> he's kind of, you know, talking about in a corner. Paul's put him in a corner. Do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Saul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? One interesting thing, if you look at the different, com, um, different uh, versions of the Bible, sometimes it comes out and it's written as a statement. Paul, in a short while, 
you will convince me to become a Christian. Some translations, and I don't know the Greek on this, some translation, they feel it's a question. Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Think about that difference. Um, the ESV has it as a question mark. I think the New American Standard has it as a period. Those are my top two translations, and they're on either side of it, so that I'm not sure what to say about that. Verse 29, and Paul said, whether short or long, in other words, whether short time or a long time, I would to God that not only you, but also all of you who hear me this day might become such as I am. Well, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, bless her heart, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, you know, this man could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. Now, that makes it sound like Paul made a bad move by appealing to Caesar, but, but that's actually probably not true. Because remember, they wanted to do a favor to the Jews. They didn't want to disrupt that flow of money. So I'm not so sure that Paul did a bad thing. All right, that takes us to verse 26. Things get really exciting next week. There's, there's travel. There's, there's a cruise that doesn't go quite. It goes kind of like a Gilligan's Island sort of cruise. Um, it, it's very interesting stuff. And um, we'll either get to the end that week or maybe the week after. All right. That's it. Father, we thank you for your scripture, the way you bring it to life. And uh, help us to see that, that this story is, in fact, the culmination of everything that comes before it. And it all has to do with you bringing glory to yourself by giving grace to ones like us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody. Oh, Julie has a, an announcement. <laughs>